We're in a sermon series called uh, Peace Love Summer, and the opening week, Pastor Rusty brought us through a section of Matthew chapter 6, which calls followers of Jesus away from anxiety and into God's peace, and then on a, another subsequent Sunday, we looked at Psalm 23, where again, uh, we continued our look into peace and how the great shepherd, the Lord, desires that and gives that to his people. And today, as we continue in the series, we now land on the middle term of our series title, Love. What does the Bible teach about love? Its material on the subject is so vast that a preacher has a wealth of options and passages that we could look at. I mean, for example, we could do a verse-by-verse study of the great, what's called the great love chapter of the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you know, love is patient, love is kind, all those uh, aspects of love. Uh, We could focus on the passages of the so-called love apostle. I'm referring to John, son of Zebedee. Um, You know, it's from his pen that we get John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Or John, son of Zebedee, has many love one another passages, and we could consider what it means to truly show love one uh, to one another as people within the the church community. We could even... uh, really close the submarine hatch and do a deep dive and go profound and explore the first John chapter 4 text that say God is love. The essence of our God is love. Or a preacher might choose to plant their feet firmly in the Gospels and to talk about any number of timeless texts there. I mean, we could talk about the parable of the prodigal son. What a classic or the passage about a contrite woman who kissed and anointed the feet of Jesus in loving devotion from Luke chapter 7. Or, or what about those amazing and utterly convicting love your enemies passages like in Matthew 5 or Luke chapter 6. All those options are great. They're inviting. They're classic. But we're not going to look at any of that this morning. <laughs> Because I believe, I firmly believe that how the Lord moved in my life in preparation for this morning was to land me in a passage that wouldn't belong on the splash list for all the classic passages about love in the Bible. It was in 2 Timothy. I mean, he put me, he landed me in there for some serious soaking of it up, meditating on what this text means, and then later, out of that deep study, moved me into a very different passage by contrast. And the pairing is totally unconventional, okay? So just disclaimer, we're going to do something unconventional this morning. Our lead pastor's out of town, so, you know, all the wheels have come off the the track, right? (laughs) But, you know, I can testify that, that this study of two very contrasting passages have helped me refine my understanding of love and its place in our times, if I can put it that way. And Christ's call to be people of God-honoring love. You see, these passages, these two passages are very different, and yet they do both talk about love. It's kind of like two songs that you wouldn't normally put together. But in the end, if you were really pressed to think about it, you would say, oh yeah, they do both deal with the subject of love. Um, here's an example of the Beatles. All you need is love. All right? Put that with Pat Benatar's Love is a Battlefield. I mean, all you need is love's battlefields, right? Yeah, that'll solve your problems. Um, or, or another example, let's take all the chivalry and honor of Peter Cetera's The Glory of Love, right? Theme in the Karate Kid. The Glory of Love with Lady Gaga's I Want Your Stupid Love. <laughs> right? uh, big contrast. 
And I've titled this message, The Two Opposing Paths of Love. There's a passage in Paul's second letter to Timothy in which the apostle looks to the future. He prophetically addresses the future, and he describes the character of people in the last days. And please turn in your Bibles then to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to take a look and we're going to meditate on the Word of God this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And there under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul writes, Understand this. I'm in chapter 3 verse 1. Understand this, that in the last days there will be very difficult times for people will be lovers of self. That line is very jarring to modern ears, to postmodern ears. What? Shouldn't, shouldn't it really say there will be very inspiring, great times for people will be lovers of self? But no, that's not what the text says. It says there will be very difficult times. Other translations render it distressing times, perilous times. Uh, the New American Standard Bible Revised even says terrifying times. Okay? And what's more, in addition to the difficulty that's associated with this love, this actually here in 2 Timothy 3.2, when we see lovers of self, that begins a vice list. Okay, I don't know about you, but when I hear the word love, my mind tends to go to the positive. You know, the 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, and the greatest of these is love. But that's not what's happening here. Uh, it's not about love in its virtuous sense. This is unmistake, unmistakably the first in a long list of vices, behaviors and attitudes that define bad character. I mean, there's like 18 vices in this passage that Paul gives to Timothy. And heading the list is lovers of self. Wow, let's consider that. Virtue and vice lists go far, far back in the ancient world. Um, they were a conventional form of moral instruction. And the recording of ethical lists is seen as early as Homer, eight centuries before Christ. Uh, three centuries later, at the time of Socrates, it flourished, the writing of ethical lists to teach moral behavior. And the virtue and vice list uh, activity was well and alive at the time of the writing of the New Testament. It's not surprising at all that throughout the New Testament there are many virtue lists, there are many vice lists. And these are distinguished because they've been integrated with the gospel. Now there's a, a deeper understanding of where virtue and vice is rooted in and how it's possible to escape one's vices through the good news of the gospel. So Paul writes, understand this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be distressing times for people will engage in all these vices. And as we said, he starts with a single Greek word. I guess I didn't say it. I'm telling you now. When we say lovers of self, it's just a single Greek word. Okay, one word that means lovers of self. Phil autoi. P-H-I-L. Phil. Okay, Phil is love. And maybe without knowing it, you're already familiar with the fact that P-H-I-L is love. Uh, take, for example, philanthropy. Literally, the love of human beings. Okay, or philosophy. The love of wisdom. Well, here we have 
fill out toy. What's the out toy about? Well, that's the Greek word for self. Okay, the English word autonomy comes from the Greek word autoi. And autonomy means literally self-determination, uh, the self having its own laws. So Paul is saying, understand this, that in the last times, there's going to be great distress because people will be lovers of themselves. So I got a question for you this morning, lots of questions. You spotted any lovers of self in the world recently? Students, in your classrooms, in your college campuses and so forth, do you see any lovers of self? Uh, teachers, do you see in your classrooms any lovers of self? Parents in your homes, do you see any lovers of self? And what about on television or streaming services or podcasts? Um, how about Hollyweird? Any lovers of self there? Or the sports world? Okay, does any of the sports world population fit the lovers of self description? LeBron James, his very first tweet, no, no lie, here was his first tweet. Hello world, the real King James is in the building, finally. Yeah. Okay, we're getting closer to home. What about in the church world? Does any of that population, our population, fit the description lovers of self? Heads nodding no all over the room. Heaven help us. Denial's not just a river in Egypt. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I got one more. No, I got two more. Your workplace. Any lovers of self creating difficult times in your workplace? Anyone relate to that? And finally, Washington, D.C. Okay. A place that takes its name from George Washington. Any lovers of self in Washington, D.C.? And all God's people said, <laughs> right, yes. And tomorrow's the 4th of July, okay? So can we get in the mood and just take a minute and talk George Washington, okay? And hang with me because this does tie into what we're talking about, okay? Washington, the only person in American history ever unanimously chosen to serve as president, right? Not one vote against him in the Electoral College. George Washington who, when he thought about his inauguration upcoming, dreaded it. Why? Because he knew that leadership required sacrifice. He planned to retire after serving one term. But his closest advisors, people like Alexander Hamilton and James Madison, came to him and said, look, for the good of this new, fledgling, developing country, we think it, it would be great if you ran again. You're the man that's needed. Would you please reconsider your retirement plans? And our first president did reconsider his retirement plans and reluctantly, and that's the word, reluctantly. He didn't jump into it. Yes, great, I'm, I'm coming in. No, he thought about it. He was realizing the sacrifice there. I'm not going to be able to retire if this thing goes forward. And reluctantly, he ran again. And would you believe for the second time, unanimously, George Washington was chosen to be America's president. See, lovers of self was not a description that would fit him. Uh, his contemporary, Thomas Jefferson, wrote this about George Washington. And I quote, On the whole, his character was, in its mass, perfect, in nothing bad, and in a few points, indifferent. See, folks, it's all been downhill from then. All right? Have a great fourth. Yeah. 
It was in November of 2013 that, you know, our country's finest dictionary tradition, the American Heritage Dictionary, announced all the word additions for the year to the upcoming editions. And among the new word additions was the word selfie. The executive editor said, and I'm quoting, we don't enter that many words to our dictionaries from pop culture. When we do, they are ones that had to be very widespread. Selfie is such a word, and it shows the pulse of the culture, end quote. Now, I'm not saying up here this morning that there's anything inherently wrong with selfies, but I wonder, is the selfie and the selfie culture, is that part of a parable of our times, of a preoccupation that is me-oriented, a preoccupation with an unhealthy celebration of self? Paul wrote, as he mentored Timothy, understand this, son, that in the last days there will be very difficult times for people will be lovers of self. What are the last days? That's hard to define with any precision. I mean, part of it is because it's very challenging to synthesize and sequence all that the Bible has to say about end-time events. But it's also hard because of the very nature of your and my mortality, the very nature of time, space, and some of you may recall when I preached a message in our Habakkuk series, we discussed the explosion of a certain supernova. And in that message, uh, we asked the question, did it explode on February 23rd, 1987, as eyewitness astronomers in South America observing it claimed and then later confirmed and measured the massive energy released by that explosion? The star exploded 170,000 years earlier. And the light created by that explosion as it traveled nearly 6 trillion miles per year took 170,000 years to reach our galaxy. See, defining the last days is with precision. It's challenging, right? Because we are so limited and there's so much we don't know about time and space and sequence and causation and when this happened. But I will say this that we can say, based upon the Bible's evidence, that the phrase, the last days, is, it can be defined as a period that comes right before the end of the ages. And anyone living in the period from the birth of Jesus to his future second coming can be said, according to the New Testament, to be living in the last days. We are living in the last days. This text is for us. Now, just how immediately prior to Christ's coming we are living, no one can know, right? Mark 13, 32. No one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. And Chad Bird puts it well. He says, in about every generation, there were Christians who thought the end was very near, and they were convinced that they were living in the last days. And they were right though probably not in the way they thought they were. So what I want to do, rather than getting hyper-focused on the last days, exactly what that means and how close we may be to this final coming, I'm not going to get into that, right? No one can know. Where I want to put the focus this morning is rather on this, that God's Word is telling all Christian believers, from Timothy back in ancient Ephesus to you and me in 
Wichita in the 21st century that until Christ does return, the world will see an intensification of the wrong types of love. In the general population, there will be an intensive... Don't miss this truth. Scripture is teaching that the wrong types of love in general population will flourish. These are things that are love in name only, but they're actually vices. They belong on a vice list. Now let's look at the second term on this vice list. It says, in the last days there will be difficult times for people will be lovers of money. Miserliness, greed, fixation on material possessions and purchasing power, those are the ideas here. People will be in love with that stuff, increasingly so until Christ's return. And my guess, if I can kind of put myself in the shoes of Timothy, is that when he got this second letter and he's reading through this vice list, you know, lovers of self, lovers of money, ah, that would have triggered a memory to the first letter that he got from Paul. Remember what was written in 1 Timothy 6.10? For the love of money is a root, not the only root, a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now concerning this vice list in 2 Timothy 3, there's actually some rhymes here. Some rhyming sounds are going on in the original Greek. The text is using rhymes to call attention to love, yet wanting Timothy to see that it's not godly love. And so I want to put on display the sound of these rhymes that are in the original. It says, people in the last days will be Phil Altoy, Phil Argaroy. Lovers of self, lovers of people. And the rhyme is not coincidental. In fact, later on in this passage, if you look to verse 4, there's more Phil or love vocabulary and more rhyming. Verse 4 has lovers of pleasure, and that's one word, Phil Adenoi, rather than lovers of God, one word, Phil Atheoi. Now, ladies and gentlemen, please do not mishear me. It's not that a Christ follower can't have self-love or money or pleasure, because all those things have their rightful place in our lives in the right context and to the right degree, if that's in place. But when any of these things or others compete with or even hinder loving God, then they have become vices to repent of. The picture here is of idolatry. Because our religion, in effect, then becomes ourselves, our material wealth, our pleasure, and so forth. And we become so attached to this God or that God, little g, that if the true living God comes before us and asks us to give it up, like Jesus suggested you know, to the rich young ruler, then we would not. We would miss out on the blessing of the highest love because we settled Luke 16, 13, Jesus says, No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. What then is the remedy to the prevalence of idolatrous false loves in the last days? Well, the contrast is in an epic Oscar-winning scene between a lawyer and Jesus of Nazareth. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. 
And no, the Academy of Motion Pictures wasn't around back then. I was just seeing if anyone was still listening. Matthew chapter 22. I just want to read the text straightforward from verse 34 to 40. As all the stuff in 2 Timothy is a backdrop, now we shift and we turn to a very different passage, a very different song, and we read, But when the Pharisees heard that he, Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him, Jesus, a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first, this is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. All right, so here we have a lawyer Pharisee, right? Someone who's an expert in religious law, testing Jesus. There's an ulterior motive here, trying to get him to fail or to see if he's incompetent as a teacher. Yet Jesus answers him directly and graciously. Jesus doesn't recite from the Ten Commandments, as some people then or now might suppose, but he he answers a question about what the the great commandment is by going to something called the Shema. The Shema is just in one place in the Bible of the Jews, the Hebrew Scriptures. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and following. If you've not heard of the Shema before, the Shema is an Israelite affirmation of faith which came to be heavily recited from ancient times up right now to modern Judaism. And uh, Tim Mackey likens the usage of the Shema for Jews to the Lord's Prayer in Christianity. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Okay, just a very classic text, very classic wording in Deuteronomy chapter 6 that people would recite, they would use as prayers in, in public services and in their private time. And so Jesus begins uh, quoting, not at the very beginning of the Shema, which is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. Okay, that's where the word Shema comes from. It's, it's, it's the, literally the word, listen, listen, Israel. But he, he goes to Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, and starts quoting, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And as he says that, Jesus actually replaces might, from the Hebrew text, with mind. Interesting. Most interesting. Right? The Shema said a sequence of three, and and the third one was strength or might. And when Jesus said it, he didn't do that. He got to position three and he said mind. I've thought about that a lot. Man, would that be a perfect opportunity for a Pharisee lawyer to come in for the kill? You got the text wrong, Jesus. That's not what it says. But you know, we don't have any record of this Pharisee faulting Jesus for how he quoted the Shema. And so part of me wonders if Jesus, who knows people's hearts, intentionally cited or created a paraphrase that this particular Pharisee himself was inclined to. Perhaps Jesus is doing something in an effort to connect very personally with this man. We are not told. This is speculation on my part. 
But in any event, by his answer, Jesus proved that he thoroughly understood the Shema. Because whether the concept is to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and might, or heart, soul, and mind, there's really no difference because what the text is teaching is that we are to love God with every aspect of who we are as holistic beings. And we can and should love God with our affection, our mental understanding, our spirit, our emotion, our will, every nuance that we might name. Psalm 103, verse 1, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. That's what Deuteronomy 6 is about. All, anything you can name in you, your strength, your cognition, whatever it is, the greatest commandment is to rally all of that to the love of your creator, the Lord God. And notice in this story in Matthew 22, this account, that the whole episode could have stopped at verse 38. The lawyer came to test Jesus. He asked the question. Jesus has answered it. Case closed. But it's not closed. Maybe Maybe Jesus has passed the test to the lawyer's satisfaction. But apparently Jesus is not satisfied at this point. So he keeps going. Jesus gets generous with a man that came to test him. Verse 39. And a second is like it. I just told you the first command. Now a second is like it. By saying this, Jesus is probably meaning that this second commandment is of equal importance. And that's according to Craig Blomberg. So the sense of the passage is, this is the first and greatest commandment, and a second greatest commandment is... Jesus is expanding here. And for this commandment, Jesus mentally backs up two books earlier in the Law of Moses. He had been in Deuteronomy. Now he backs up to the book of Leviticus. The big concern in the first 11 chapters of Deuteronomy is idolatry. The big concern in the book of Leviticus is holiness. And of course, there's a big overlap. But basically, Leviticus chapter 19 came, contains a miscellany of commands about being holy because the Lord God is holy. But Jesus cites the last part of verse 18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And by neighbor, Jesus means people in general, but especially hurting people in need. Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan vividly shows compassion, the, the, the compassion and discomfort that love of neighbor should include. Well, how Jesus answered that Pharisee that day changed the world. It changed the world. What Christ formulated in that interchange has come to be called the double love command. The double love command. You ever heard of it? You know the concept, maybe you just don't know the heading, but that's, that's a shorthand way of referring to what Jesus did that day and how he brought together two different texts. And we could express the double love command this way. Love God with all yourself and love people as yourself. Let me say that again. Love God with all yourself and love people as yourself. Now, Jewish interpreters had long acknowledged the greatness of these two particular verses, one in Deuteronomy and one in Leviticus. 
But as far as historians can tell, Jesus was the very first person in history to pair these commands taken from very different parts of the law and then to exalt the whole formulation above the whole law. And that's what the last verse is referring to, right? Verse 40, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. That's a revolutionary assertion. That is amazing. And it's just one more way that we can see and appreciate the uniqueness of Jesus of Nazareth. The late Walter Martin, who defended the Christian faith and debated and persuaded all sorts of people, humanists, atheists, Mormons, scientists. Walter Martin used to say, let me tell you about the greatest philosopher and moralist the world has ever known. His name is Jesus, and he's Savior. He's King of Kings, and he's Lord of Lords. And so there it is for us this morning, these two opposing paths of love. Out of 2 Timothy, we've got these illegitimate things that go by love and name only, but they're not. And then on the other side, the double love command of Jesus. Two loves that are not only legitimate, they should be our highest calling as human beings. You know, everyone loves. Everyone loves. But which kind of love is the real question, according to the Bible? So are we lovers of self, pleasure, money, rather than God? Or are we endeavoring to obey the double love command to love God with all our heart and our neighbor as ourselves. In a moment, I'm going to have the worship team reassemble. And I want to lead them to lead us in the classic hymn, My Jesus, uh, I Love Thee. But before we do that, would you pray with me? Well, Lord, thank you for guiding us in our time this morning. Thank you for the way that you led me through some pretty different texts to really see the great contrast between the type of love that will flourish in the last days and then the type of love that issues from your throne that you call us to. Lord, I pray for every person in this room, every person in the sound of my voice, that they first of all would know and experience your love. Father, that you would just bring that refreshment, that comfort, that peace that only your love can bring. And then Father, I pray that you would motivate us to turn from our evil ways, to turn from our wandering ways, and to not settle, and to not do this thing called love that's really not from you, but it's from our flesh. So help us, Lord, to be people of the Shema, to love you with all that's within us, and then from that vertical love, to then turn to the horizontal and to love our fellow human being as ourselves.